Please take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy is in the New Testament, and we're going to be looking at uh, verses 18 through 20 of 1 Timothy 1 tonight. Uh, because of the Christmas season, we, we took a short break from this book, um, but we're back into it tonight, and we're going to wrap up chapter 1, 1 Timothy 1, verses 18 through 20. Paul writes these words, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Well, as we all know, this is uh, the last day of 2023. Tomorrow it's a brand new year. I talked to you a lot, a lot of you before the service asking if you're going to stay up till midnight and nobody I talked to said they're staying up. So I don't know if some of you will, but uh, in a few short hours, it's going to be 2024. And, and time just keeps rolling on year after year after year. And like every other year, uh, 2024 is going to have ups and downs. It's going to have joys and challenges. There will be new adventures. There will be just plain everyday living and everything in between. Now, because it's the last day of the year, I, I kind of toyed around with pressing the pause button still on First Timothy and looking at another passage that kind of relates to old year or new year. But when I looked at, at what Paul writes here at the end of chapter 1, I thought, you know, this is actually quite fitting. This is a fitting passage for all of us to hear as we are about to embark upon uh, a new year, what Paul writes here. Now, you may look at this and say, well, this is just Paul writing to a pastor. This is Pastor Timothy, and this is Paul's instructions to a pastor in a local church, and that is true, but I, I want you all to see tonight that this is very applicable to all of us. And, and what I want you to see in this passage and what I want to impress upon all of us tonight as we are about to enter 2024 is that we are in a war. We are in a war. Christians, the church of Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what country we live in, it doesn't matter what county we live in, it, it doesn't matter how conservative our town or our area may be, we are in a war. Now this isn't a physical war, this isn't an earthly war, this isn't a war that we fight with um, jets and rocket launchers and, and AR-15s, this is a spiritual war. And because it's a spiritual war, it's a war that is fought with God's weapons, namely the word of God and with prayer. Now, now I think that, that Christians in other countries, especially places of intense persecution, uh, perhaps they understand this war more than we do. Perhaps they take it more seriously than we do. According to the website Open Doors, uh, 312 million Christians face very high or extreme levels of persecution today. 
Now, I don't know where they got that number. I don't know if it's accurate, but, but I know it is very, very high. 312 million, maybe a little less than that, maybe a little bit more. But undoubtedly, if you live in a place where you face either very high or extreme levels of persecution, you know that you are in a war. And, and maybe we don't understand it quite as much. But, but as our culture becomes more and more ungodly, as our culture moves further and further and further away from objective truth, as evil is called good at an increasing and and, and alarming level, I, I think we are starting to realize more and more that we are in a very real, very serious war. And I don't know that it's going to get better in our lifetimes. We pray that it will. We pray that God will bring revival and reformation. But, but regardless, we are in a spiritual war. And so as, as we prepare to embark upon a new year, I thought that this passage, what Paul writes here to Timothy, is very applicable for us tonight. And I want you to notice three things. First of all, Timothy is to remember his charge. Second, Timothy is to be engaged in the battle. And and third, Timothy is to take note of those who have rejected the truth. Timothy is, first of all, to remember his charge. It's important to understand the context in which Paul writes this book. Uh, If if you've been here as we've gone through this book, you know that based on what Paul writes here at the very beginning of 1 Timothy, it, it seems that Timothy was dealing with a situation where there were false teachers promoting false doctrine. And, and this false doctrine, as false doctrine usually does, led to sinful living. If, if you have your Bible open, you look back to verse 3, uh, Paul uses the phrase different doctrine. Verse 4, myths and endless genealogies. Verse 6, Paul talks about those who have swerved from the faith. He talks about vain discussion. Verse 7, he basically says these false teachers don't know what they're talking about. And so you have this local church in Ephesus, and you kind of get an idea what's going on there, that the church was in danger of falling under the sway of these false teachers. Truth was being attacked, godliness was being attacked, and because of this, Timothy needs to be reminded of his charge. And you say, well, what charge? Very simply, his charge to shepherd the local church. His charge to teach his people the truth. His charge to protect his people from error. And this isn't just Paul's advice to Timothy. These aren't just some, you know, suggestions that that Paul thinks Timothy might find helpful. This isn't just Paul saying, you know, Timothy, I, I know you're in a tough spot in your church. Have you ever thought about doing this? That's not what this is. This word that's translated charge could also be translated command. In fact, it's translated that way in some translations. Command. It's a military term. It it refers to an order that has been given by a superior. This is a charge to the young pastor Timothy from the Apostle Paul. And since it's from the Apostle Paul, ultimately it's from God himself. And and Paul here is reminding Timothy of the weight of his calling. As the church carries out its ministry corporately together, and as we 
tonight and every Sunday night leave here and we scatter to our different areas in which we live, we are engaged in a very serious war. Now there's a sense in which Paul's instructions are first and foremost directed to those who serve as office bearers. And so pastors and elders and and deacons should read these words and they should take them very seriously. We are to take our callings, brothers, very seriously. Whether we are a pastor or an elder or a deacon, we have been given a charge. We have been given an order. Now, what does it look like for pastors and elders and deacons to take this charge seriously? What does it look like to to understand that, that what we have here is a very weighty calling Well, a couple of things. First of all, it means that as office bearers, we are to be setting setting an example to the congregation. 1 Peter chapter 5 says that elders are to be examples to the flock. Hebrews 13 says something interesting. It says that, that Christians are to follow the example of the leaders of their church. That forces us, if if we are an office bearer, to ask the question, what kind of example do I set? For the congregation. If, if God's people are to follow me, if God's people are to follow the example of their office bearers, then what kind of example are the office bearers setting? When the congregation looks at, at my life, the life of any office bearer, what do they see? We are called to be an example of faithfulness. We are called to be an example of of being involved in the life of the body. We are called to be an example of of devotion to Christ, love for our families, love for one another. We're not just, you know, checking the box until our terms are up. We're not just checking the box until the Lord moves us on. We are to be examples. Secondly, it also means that that office bearers are to genuinely care about the spiritual well-being of of those under their care. That that means we are to be faithful in, in feeding them the truth of God's word. We are to be faithful in warning them about false doctrine. We are to be faithful in in instructing them and calling them back to Christ should they sway or swerve or stray away from Christ. This is why no office bearer should enter into office lightly. It's a very serious calling. Now, many of you might be saying, whew, I'm glad I'm not an office bearer. This just applies to 15 guys here. Well, that's not true exactly. Um, There's a sense in which what Paul says here to Timothy applies to all of us tonight. All of us are to take the Christian life seriously. All of us have have the, the duty to set an example for others, especially to our children and our grandchildren. All of us have the duty to to instruct one another with the word of God, to to genuinely care about the well-being of one another. That's what it means to be the family of God. That's what it means to be part of the body of Christ. 
that we take this seriously. In, in Lord's Day 12 of the Heidelberg Catechism, the, the question is asked, why are you called a Christian? I, I wonder how, without looking at the catechism, I wonder how we would answer that question. Why are you called a Christian? And, and the answer that the catechism gives shows us the, the, the seriousness with which we are to take the Christian life. Why are you called a Christian, the catechism asks. Here's the answer. Because by faith I am a member of Christ, and so I share in his anointing. I am anointed to confess his name. That's my role as a prophet, all Christians. To present myself to him as a living sacrifice of thanks. That's my role as a priest. To strive with a free conscience against sin and the devil in this life. That's my role as a king. This is not just for pastors or elders or deacons. This is not just for, for seminary professors or missionaries or, or people who are just super serious about the faith. This is for all Christians. As we go into the year 2024, it's good to remember that we are all called to confess the name of Christ. That's not just talking about when you've made a public profession of your faith. That's just the starting line, so to speak. We are called to confess the name of Christ at work, at school, in our homes, in our neighborhoods. We confess his name by our lips and by our lives. We are also called to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, and we are called to fight against sin. So that shows you the, the weight of what it means to live for Christ. And imagine living in a, in a country of persecution where you'd be very serious before committing yourself to Christ because you know that confessing the name of Christ and offering yourself as a living sacrifice to Christ will cause you trouble and maybe even death. And so you take it seriously. Paul says something else here to Timothy in verse 18. He, he talks about the prophecies that had been made previously about him. Now you might look at that and say, what exactly is Paul talking about? What prophecies were made about Timothy? Well, the fact of the matter is we don't know. God has not chosen to reveal that to us. But in all likelihood, this was something that happened when Timothy was ordained into the ministry. If you have your Bible open, look over at chapter 4 and notice verse 14. Chapter 4, verse 14. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Now, at this point in redemptive history, the canon of Scripture has not yet been closed. God was still giving revelation through prophets and apostles. And so it seems that, that Timothy was given some kind of gift, some kind of special calling to the ministry through prophecy. Now, it's different in our day. Uh, God is not continuing to give us fresh revelation. The canon of Scripture has been closed. The book of Jude tells us that the faith has been delivered once and for all to God's people. And so it's not exactly the same today, but today we do speak of a man's internal calling and his external calling. His, his internal calling is when he has a, a, a strong desire to be in the ministry. We'll, we'll talk about this more when we get to chapter 3. And the external calling is when the church confirms that, 
when, when the church confirms that this man has the necessary gifts and the, and the necessary godliness to serve. This is true for pastors and, and elders and deacons that, that we all have a, a desire to serve the Lord and to serve his body and that the church then uh, sees those gifts in us. But, but Timothy had been given a gift. Timothy had been given a calling. And, and Paul says, Timothy, don't neglect that gift don't not use it. Use your gift. Use your calling. Same is true today. Pastors, elders, deacons at, at some point were ordained and set apart to the ministry. And, and we must not neglect that calling. Now, what are we to use our gifts and our calling for? Well, that's the second part of the passage. Timothy is to be engaged in the battle. Paul says at the end of verse 18 that, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Timothy, God has gifted you. Timothy, God has called you to this. Timothy, make sure that, that you use your calling and you use your gifts that God has given you to fight the good fight. And I would say that to every one of our elders and every one of our deacons tonight, that, that these brothers are to use their calling and to use the gifts God has given them to, to fight the good fight. And you say, well, what fight is that? What warfare is this? Well, I've already mentioned to you this is a spiritual warfare, but specifically what kind of spiritual warfare? And I think based on the context and based on what Paul has already talked about here earlier in chapter 1, this is the war for the truth. This is the truth war. From the very beginning of time in, in the Garden of Eden, there has been a war for the truth, right? Always. The serpent said to, to Eve, um, has God really said Casting doubt on the truth of God's word. And, and this war has not ceased. It's not settled down. It has raged on. Moses comes down from the mountain. And, and what does he find? He finds that God's people had abandoned the truth. They had abandoned true worship. And they were now engaged in false worship. The golden calf. Elijah has to do battle with 450 prophets of Baal who were teaching false doctrine. And over and over and over, when you read the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets are, are speaking out against false prophets who had not been sent by God and who were lying and teaching things that were not true. Throughout the Gospels, who does Jesus deal with? He deals with the Pharisees. He deals with the religious leaders who had twisted God's word, who had added to God's word. Paul wrote the book of Galatians because false teachers promoting a false gospel had infiltrated the church. Just about every letter in the New Testament in some way talks about false teaching. We went through Revelation not too long ago and and you remember the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, and throughout those letters, Jesus calls out false teachers. So the Bible is, is full of examples for us that we are in a war for the truth, and, and it hasn't stopped church history 
tells us that this war is found all throughout the history of the church. The Nicene Creed, which we confess on occasion on Sunday nights, came from the Council of Nicaea. It was written in the fourth century, and the reason that council met was to deal with people who said Jesus is not God. Jesus is great. Jesus is really good. Jesus is the highest of God's creation, but he's not eternal God. And so the Council of Nicaea met to combat that false teaching and to speak the truth. You go on throughout church history, you think of the 16th century Protestant Reformation. It arose at a time when the gospel had become, by and large, Jesus plus our works. That's false. Anything added to Jesus is a false gospel. We've been reading through the Cans of Dort on Sunday nights, and the Cans of Dort were written because false teaching had infiltrated the church. And, and so over and over you see the church waging war for the truth, and this war hasn't stopped. It will not stop until Jesus returns. Satan is always attacking the truth. And because of this, the church must always be defending the truth and promoting the truth. Sadly, I, I think there, there doesn't seem to be a big interest to do that anymore in Christian circles today. I, I was in college and seminary in the late 1980s, and during that time is when the whole church growth, seeker-sensitive movement came out. And, and at that time, and because of that movement, the church seems to be more interested in other things other than the truth. The church wants to be culturally relevant. The church often wants to be hip and, and cutting edge. The, the, the church wants to, to tell people what they want to hear and, and do things that those people in the world want to do, all with the hope of attracting more people to the church. And, and when that's your focus, when that's your emphasis, you're not going to spend a whole lot of time teaching and defending sound doctrine because you're going to do anything you can to get new people in the church. But, but Paul is saying here, Timothy, as the pastor of your church, you need to take the lead in teaching truth, in, in equipping your people with truth. You need to take the lead in, in combating error and false doctrine because, Timothy, you are in a war. You are in a truth war. Now, I know that, that there are some doctrines over which we can have healthy intramural debates with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Baptism, eschatology, uh, church government, these are things that, that we can and we do disagree about with people that we are going to spend eternity with. Charles Spurgeon was one of the greatest preachers in the history of the church, but I don't agree with Charles Spurgeon when it comes to baptism. John MacArthur has been a great defender of the truth, but I don't agree with John MacArthur when it comes to eschatology. But these men are going to be in heaven. These men are, were and are godly men. And so there are some things that, that, that we can have a healthy discussion and disagreement about. Sadly, there are some who act as if, well, if you're not reformed, you're, you're not going to be in heaven. 
If you don't hold our position on baptism, then you're lost. But there are other things that we cannot have healthy disagreement about. The Trinity, the person and the work of Christ, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The Bible is the word of God. There's no debate and there's no discussion about these things. And by the way, this, this highlights for us, if you don't know it already, the importance of our creeds and our confessions. Our creeds and confessions are things that have been hammered out in the history of the church that, that protect and guard sound doctrine. But, but the war against truth continues on today. I mentioned to you this morning, we live in a culture which is redefining marriage We live in a culture which is redefining gender. We live in a culture which is basically saying there's there's no objective truth. Um, There's your truth and there's my truth and everybody else's truth and don't you dare tell me what is objective absolute truth. And it's not just out there in the culture, it's crept into the church. Um, Modern day studies and polls show that that Christians today know far less than they previously did. By and large, Christians, many of them are not very discerning. You, you read some of the surveys that come out today and you see that many Christians have no grasp on the fundamentals of the faith. And so again, we're in a war for the truth and, and fighting this war starts with pastors. It actually starts with seminaries who train pastors. But in the local church, it starts with pastors, starts with elders, and and all of us have a responsibility to know and to stand for the truth of God's word and to defend that truth against error. Tomorrow's the first day of a new year. If, If you're not planning on doing it already, I would encourage you to think about a Bible reading program for the year. We we put some copies out in the fellowship hall, and an email was sent out to you this week, and There's a bunch of different options out there, and we all know that we start with good intentions and we stumble a bit, but but don't give up. It's a great way to to arm yourself to to better stand for truth. Take some time in the coming year to to read through our creeds and our confessions. There, There are usually copies on the table in the lobby. If there aren't any there, come see me and I'll give you one. All of us are are called to arm ourselves with the truth so that we might be good soldiers in this war. It's not just pastors, not just elders, not just seminary profs. It's all of us who are to know the truth. And knowing the truth is a good thing for us. Notice the benefit. Paul says at the very beginning of verse 19, he says, holding faith and a good conscience. That, That little word faith there means the the content of the Christian faith. In other words, Christian, as you you know the truth, as you fight for the truth, you will better hold on to the truth. And and this isn't something that that we can take for granted. When this church was started 25 years ago, almost 26 years ago now, it, it was started with the firm conviction that the Bible is the word of God and with a firm commitment to stand for the truth and the authority of the word of God. 
But we can't just assume that because that was the commitment almost 26 years ago, that that will always be the commitment. Zion will always need pastors and elders and deacons who are committed to stand for the truth of Scripture as summarized in our creeds and our confessions. And and doing this, standing for God's truth, no matter what the cost, Paul says, will provide us with a good conscience. An easy way to put this is it will help you sleep at night when you stand up for the truth. The third thing we want to see very briefly tonight is that Timothy is to take note of those who have rejected the truth. You see, there's a, there's a dual aspect to the truth. First of all, we need to know the truth, but we also need to take note of those who have rejected the truth so that we won't follow down their same path. Paul mentions here in verse 20, two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who had rejected the truth. Now, we don't know a whole lot about these guys. Hymenaeus is actually mentioned later on in 2 Timothy, where Paul says, um, avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus, there's our guy Hymenaeus, and Philetes, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. And Alexander may be the same Alexander that Paul talks about in 2 Timothy 4, verse 14, where he says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. So you have these two men here who taught false doctrine, who caused Paul and the church in Ephesus tremendous harm. And and Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, these kinds of men should be a warning to you. It's a warning what happens when you play fast and loose with the truth. It's a warning what happens when you veer from the truth, when you think you're above the truth. When I was in seminary, one day I came to um, class, Hebrew class, and I was told that my Hebrew professor was no longer there. This was a very, very, very learned man. He probably forgot more Hebrew than I had ever learned. Uh, he, he was an excellent teacher. Uh, but he had walked away from the seminary because he had left his wife and he had run off with the seminary librarian. Uh, they didn't care what God said about marriage and about purity. They were going to do their own thing. And it was a stark reminder to me, even at the age of whatever I was, 23 maybe, that you, you think you're above the truth and you play fast and loose with the truth and these kinds of things can happen. And that's essentially what Paul is saying here. It's a very dangerous thing to play around with truth. It's a very dangerous thing to, to cause damage to the church of Christ like Hymenaeus and Alexander did. And this is why it doesn't matter our office in the church or it doesn't matter who we are in the church. We, we can't stand for the truth in our own strength. Pastors and elders and deacons and church members, we must always continually ask God for the grace we need to stand firm for the truth. Not our truth. Not some set of man-made standards that we've come up with, but God's truth. And Paul even shows us the seriousness of this when he says what he says in verse 20. 
He says that he has handed over these two men to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Talk about church discipline. He uses the same kind of phrasing in 1 Corinthians 5 when, when he's telling the church in Corinth how to deal with someone who is living in unrepentant sexual sin. He says there in 1 Corinthians 5, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That's basically saying you need to cast that unrepentant person outside the church into Satan's realm, as it were. You you treat that person as an unbeliever who needs the gospel. And again, this shows us how seriously God takes it when people promote false teaching and when people upset the faith of God's people. 2024 is seven hours away. And I know for, for all intents and purposes, it's an arbitrary number. It's going to be the same kind of week this week as probably last week and the week before. Things don't change just because it's now 2024. But it is a new year. And, and, and I pray that the commitment of Zion will continue to be to stand for the truth. I pray that the commitment of this church will remain a recognition that we are in a truth war and that while we have doctrines over which we can have a healthy discussion and debate, there are other doctrines we must not budge. We must stand firm. And we pray that this church, for the years to come, would stand for truth Not not to make a name for ourselves, but for the glory of God, that Zion would stand for truth. We're in a war, we're in a truth war. May God give us the grace to take this war seriously. Your children are in this war too, parents. Continue to give them the truth. Continue to give them the gospel Continue to model for them a love for the truth. As they grow up, they too would stand for God's truth in this world. Let's pray. Father, we come before you tonight and we recognize that on our own we are not sufficient. Not sufficient to to know the truth as we should. Not sufficient to stand for the truth as we should. And so we cry out to you. We pray that you would give us your help, that you would give us all that we stand in need of. We pray for the parents here tonight as they raise their children. Thank you, Lord, that they are committed to raising their children in a Christian context and pray that you would continue to bless them. We pray for our children. We pray for our young people. We pray that they would know the truth of your word and would stand for that truth. And we pray that in this year and the years to come, that Zion would continue to be a church that stands for the authority and the truth of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name.